As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Welcome to this special episode of the Curzon Podcast. We're recording right from Berlin as last night the 30th European Film Awards took place in the city and we were lucky enough to attend. I'm Sam Hallett and today I'm joined by Jake. Hello. Hello. Um, so the awards streams live on Curzon Home Cinema and over this week's episode we're going to go through each of the major awards as well as hear from a few nominees. Roger Mainwood, whose film Ethel and Ernest was nominated for Best Animated Film and William Oldroyd, the director of Lady Macbeth. But first of all, let's talk a bit about Berlin. Jake, how's your stay been so far? It's been lovely. Lovely. Yep. I'm not suffering any form of Berlin syndrome. <laughs> I, I would quite happily be locked in and kept here. It's, it's a very be nice place. Be careful what you wish for. I can see uh, that you've put yourself between me and the door. I have. Uh, what happened the last time you came to Berlin, Jake? Uh, I had a great time at the Berlin Film Festival because uh, on the plane over, I got some food poisoning. And so at the European debut of probably some of the uh, the most important films of uh, 2015, mm-hmm. uh, I got to spend four days in bed and then leave. I uh, I came to the festival. I didn't see a single film. It was wonderful. But this time I feel rejuvenated. I, uh, Berlin is back in my good books. Excellent. And uh, the part of that has definitely been down to these awards. Yes, very fun awards this year. A bit of a theme of last year as well that we've spent most of our time at a Christmas market. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could get into this, this yearly routine of ours <laughs> uh, that we, we go to somewhere in Europe. We get some mulled wine or some non-alcoholic apple and elderberry warm punch uh, on one occasion. And maybe some curry first. It's, uh, it's been lovely. And uh, long may it continue. Okay, so uh, before we watched the awards, me and Jake wrote down our predictions of who we thought the winners would be for each category. You can definitely hear that, that, that there. There's hear the, that? Ooh. That's actually been written down by us. We're going to hand them over now. We haven't seen what each other predicted. We obviously know the winners now, but uh, 
Yep. Can we hand those uh, over? Yep. So most right is buying tonight's Verst and Vine. Let's start with category one then. This was best animated feature. And the nominees were Ethel and Ernest, Louise by the Shore, Loving Vincent, and Zombillennium. But before we reveal the winner, let's hear from one of the nominees. So Ethel and Ernest is based on the graphic novel by Raymond Briggs, famous for writing The Snowman. And this uh, is about his parents. Very straightforward, very simply told. We watched it the other night for the first time, didn't we? Mm. After writing The Snowman, I thought it was a bit of a departure because that was quite a, a violent film. And uh, no, 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 no. No? I, th- I think you're thinking of a different film called The Snowman. Oh, right. Okay, this isn't Mr. Police. This isn't Mr. Police. No. Oh, that's a shame. Um, that was my favourite writing of the year, those few <laughs> sentences. Um, yeah, this is this is actually a really lovely film. I think uh, the first few minutes of it, you and I were a bit not sure of it as well. Yeah. It's like a uh, children's TV programme from the 70s or something. That This is all very nice and calm and hand-drawn and everyone's got rosy cheeks mm. and laughs a lot and is jolly and not much drama happens but we talk about this in the interview it, uh, it kind of in the last 20 minutes it it sells itself yeah. and it rewards you for the uh, the first hour that you've put in of really getting to know this family and the journey that they've been on and um yeah i i, I went from being really unsure to really loving this film in the space of 80 minutes yeah so without further ado then this was uh, what happened when me and jake met up with the director of ethel and ernest roger mainwood we are delighted to uh, welcome Roger Mainwood onto the Curzon Film Podcast to discuss Ethel and Ernest. Indeed, Ethel and Ernest. Yes. Um, so this is uh, obviously a very famous book directed uh, and illustrated by Raymond Briggs. And so I want to ask you about the line we draw between uh, replication and inspiration when you're looking at the style of the film. So when, you're, when do you look at trying to imitate Raymond Briggs and when do you put your stamp on it as well? Ah, right. Well, uh, because he's a very famous uh, illustrator and author, as you, as you mentioned, famous for The Snowman, of course, everyone will know that, especially in the UK, where it's shown every Christmas. Um, because it's Raymond Briggs, everyone knows his style, so th- the idea was to re- re- reproduce it as closely as we could. Uh, obviously, it's a different uh, medium, cinema, to illustration, and there's lots of sort of inconsistencies in the illustration that Raymond's done which are fine for a book but when it comes to uh, giving model sheets to animators then they need something that's uh, accurate and will uh, follow through from scene to scene so everyone's working to the same page so we had to sort of bring his illustrations together into model sheets that were based on uh, photos of his parents the book is about his parents. We ought to say that from the start. Uh, and our animation director, Peter Dodd, did, did the model sheets for it and uh, went down to visit Raymond and worked closely with him on them. So, um, and obviously when we come to a cinema release, we have to think more filmic than illustration. Uh, the book is a chrono- chronology of uh, their life together, 40 years of marriage from 1928 to 1971. Um, and so I had to invent some scenes, especially at the beginning, to try and uh, make it more cinematic and link some scenes that weren't linked in the book and 
take some scenes out that didn't seem to work with the narrative flow uh, and expand some scenes, uh, especially during the wartime sequences. So yes, the, there is, it's an adaptation of the book, but because it's such a personal book, uh, we couldn't go off into some fantasy land as you might in some animations, uh, and we couldn't break up the chronology of it. So it's, it's an it's a accurate portrayal of the book, but with a cinematic viewpoint. And the, the film starts with Raymond himself. Um, it does. Whose idea was that, to, to put him in, to kind of give it a kind of you know, a yeah, starting point? That was mine. I thought it was important to, um, to have him there at the beginning so that people knew, knew where it came from, because it's you know, his, his story or his parents' story, and he's actually involved in the story itself, obviously. And... Um, it's a bit of a tradition with Raymond Briggs' films. There's a live-action opening to The Snowman. He, in the original Snowman, he was, he was there. And, and then in subsequent years, it was uh, David Bowie who did a, an intro. And also When the Wind Blows is uh, the other feature film that was done in the 80s, directed by Jimmy Murakami. Um, that had a live-action opening as well of uh, cruise missiles uh, leaving Greenham Common and uh, Molesworth. Uh, that I suggested, actually, that one as well, because <laughs> I worked on that film and, and The Snowman. Um, so, yes, I, th I, thought I thought it was important to have him there. There was quite a lot of discussion about whether we should have him there or, or whether we should just go straight into the story, but uh, I, I think it was important. And, and then people around the world that are now seeing it will, who might not even know who he is mm. will be able to you know, check out who he is and have that connection. The film ends with um, some stills from his family album as well, and it sort of nicely bookends yeah. both ends of the film. Um, you mentioned about trying to, what, making having to make slight changes to get the cinematic arc of a story that mm. is not necessarily there in the book. And I think part of that challenge must be that it's, in terms of plot, despite being about 40 years and about a life, mm. it's quite light on a traditional plot it's more of a collection of scenes that's and right so did you then have to uh, f find a structure that did link them but you but you do also still leave it essentially as what it is yes. which is that lovely collection of that's snippets. right yes yes yeah I mean I have to admit it was it was quite a hard one to sell uh, in that I don't think we did got it through the Hollywood system for example uh, it, it s sort of has a very European base to it um, <laughs> sensibility and uh, yeah uh, I mean I've, I've heard some critics describe it you know comparing it to Mike Lee films or, or Ken Loach films even um, there's also a bit of David Lean's happy breed in it I, th I feel uh, if you know that one it's, it's slices of life that mm. sort of on their own you know may not add up to much although they're very funny little moments and very poignant moments but add them all together and if you stick with the film then people really become involved and, and really grow to love the characters and you know the tears at the end of the film which most people have uh, are well earned as a result yeah well you have almost an hour 70 minutes of yeah. almost watching without a dramatic involvement in it too much and then the last 20 minutes everyone who's been watching thinking they're just having a nice afternoon tea <laughs> film uh, well, suddenly found themselves falling into a tissue. Yeah. Mind you, there is World War II in the middle of it. <laughs> that is... <so>. Which, <laughs> um, 
Yes, yes, it, it does creep up on you a bit, mm. a bit like old age. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a funny one. But, um, as I say, it, it, we, I was a bit nervous, I must admit, as, uh, during the making of it, I was kept on asking people, are, are we sure this is going to work? Is, you know, there isn't, where's the story story, mm. as you see in most films? But I, I just felt, you know, it, it worked as a book, and Raymond was was uh, executive producer on it, and he I worked closely with him mm. on the script and the s storyboard. And uh, I just knew if we were sort of faithful to the spirit of the book, then the film would work as well. Um, yeah, it's not everyone everyone's cup cup of tea, you know. It's not a Hollywood blockbuster, but it's it's got a a lovely feel to it without being sentimental or nostalgic. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, there's nostalgia in there, and that it's talking about times past, but um, it's not rose-tinted in any way. And um, obviously, the reason we're talking to you is because the film's nominated for a European Film Award. And yeah. you mentioned earlier that this wouldn't have been made in like a Hollywood system, but because of its kind of its European feel. Do you think that European feel has been felt by the Academy, and that's why it's it's nominated? It's Maybe. sort of, it's sort of yeah. struck a chord with them in terms of its style. I, yes, I would. I would hope so. I, I think it might have been. Um, I mean, we've got wonderful voice artists uh, in the leads, Jim Broadbent yeah. and, and Brenda Blethyn, of course, who are, f are familiar to the European Film Awards. Um, and uh, I mentioned Mike Lee earlier. They, they're obviously stalwarts mm. of, of, of course, his yeah. cast list. Um, and in fact, it was. Uh, Brenda's performance in Secret and Lies that clicked with me, and, and I thought, mm. oh, she'd be good for for uh, Ethel. And then Jim Broadbent's kind of just followed on from that. Uh, and they, they're friends in real life, and, yeah. and they've, you know, uh, been on the stage together playing husband and wife. Uh, and we got them into the studio together so that they could bounce off each other with ad-libs and so mm. forth. And, and, and normally, when, when you do an animated film, you do separate voices and then edit them, edit them together. But uh, it it worked really well. And Raymond was in on on those yeah. recording sessions, and okay. uh, you know he said it was just like having his parents back in the room with him. So it was oh, wow. uh, very touching. He had to keep going out the room to have a little <laughs> moment to himself. <laughs> and um, before we let you go, Roger, um, it's creeping up to Christmas. Yes, and uh, you've mentioned the snowman already. Indeed. Um, can you talk a bit about? Obviously, you're an animator on the snowman. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about the, sort of the endurability of the snowman? You know, to this day, it's, it's still on every year. Yeah. My family watch it every year. Yes, well, I suppose there is, there is a connection with Ethel and Ernest with it, really, the, the poignancy of the ending. Yeah. Um, and also, actually, the, the little boy and the, the parents in Snowman uh, are really Ethel and Ernest. Mm. And, and in fact, all his major work, there are references to his parents, not directly, but uh, Jim and Hilda blogs in When the Wind Blows mm. were really his parents, yeah. and, and the house that they live in is very much similar to uh, the house in Wimbledon Park where he grew up. So yes, there's all those connections, and, and the snowman has it running running through it, really, that, that uh, feeling that, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful relationship, but uh, you know, it has to come to an end at some point, and uh, I think that that it's his it's his honesty and and truthfulness about life that uh, appeals to people, uh, 
and and also his humour and uh, and his, his his wonderful way of uh, using irony in in the words he uses in Ethel and Ernest as well. You know, it takes you off guard. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time, Roger Mangwood. Okay, thank you. Okay, very nice chap. Brought the book along with him as well. Yep. Just to prove it was definitely him. Yeah. He's definitely read the book. Yep. Uh, okay then, so who did you predict for the winner? As much as I loved Ethel and Ernest, just because I was thinking of the kind of European impact, mm. uh, I went for Loving Vincent. As did I. Yeah, I can see that. So... Uh, did we get it right? We did get it right. Yes. Loving Vincent won. Like you say, we, we both really enjoyed Ethel and Ernest, but I think Loving Vincent's just had such a sort of surge of fandom behind it this year. Um, well, even from uh, years ago, we were seeing videos popping up yeah. on Facebook and yeah. Twitter saying, this is the first painted mm. film, and you're seeing all these artists doing it, and you're seeing how much work is going in. Yeah. And I think part of Loving Vincent's success is as much down to it being a good film as it is the work that's gone into it, mm. which is an, an angle for awards that every so often you'll find something that crops up and it's it's like a revenanty thing, isn't yeah. it? Where the work is as much as what the award is for as the film itself. Definitely, yeah. So next up we had the award for Best European Screenwriter and the nominees were Francois Ozon for France, which we did an episode on. Oleg Nedin and Andrei Zyagnitsev for Loveless, Ildiko Enyedi for On Body and Soul, Yorgos Lanthimos and Ethimis Filippou for Killing of a Sacred Deer, and Ruben Osterlund for The Square. Who did you predict? Uh, for screenwriter, I went with Ruben Osterlund. As did I, and the winner was... Ruben Osterlund oh, for The Square. We just know it, mate. We're so good at this. We're good. So yeah. far. So far. Yeah, um, I do want to point out. I think there's there's a really nice selection in there. Mm. I think France is actually a really nice pick um, because the first half of this film is the whole plot of an Ernst Lubitsch film, right? And then the second half is Ozon developing and seeing where that story can actually go further. So it's like a like a quasi sequel, but mm. also a retelling at the same time. So he's really challenged himself there and developing Paula Beer's character in the film. Um, I would really see that out. And she, she gets nominated for Best Actress as well. She does, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so the winner was Ruben Osland for his follow-up to Force Majeure, The Square. Next up then, the award for Best Director. The nominees were Andre Zignatsev for Loveless, Ildiko Enyedi for On Body and Soul, Yorgos Lanthimos for Killing of a Sacred Deer, Aki Kurismaki for The Other Side of Hope, and Ruben Osland for The Square. Interesting uh, overlap there with Screenwriter. Mm. A lot of those were also the screenwriters. Uh, I predicted Ruben Osland for The Square. You predicted Ruben Osland for The Square. The winner was Ruben Osland. There's already a pattern forming. Yes. Uh, yes it's is. very similar to last year, where mm. uh, slowly but surely the Tony Erdman team mm. was sweeping kept the board, walking kept up. walking up yeah. to the stage. I think... Um, I don't know if we read too much into it, but what you say about the screenplay and mm. the directing thing, the idea of that kind of European auteur, mm. like complete control, uh, is very evident in these awards. There's no award for adapted screenplay. Yeah. That it is just screenplay. And so I think we're looking at films here that are very much someone's vision than 
I know people want to say that they're a collaborative effort, yeah. which definitely they are. But I think maybe the angle that these awards have is yeah. perhaps more focused on the individual artists at work. And European cinema has always really been the artist's, the one person's medium, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Ruben Osland winning his second award tonight for Best Director for The Square. So let's talk a bit about the recipient of this year's winner for the award for European Achievement in World Cinema, which was Julie Delpy. She actually made a really good speech uh, about working in this industry in 30 years that her award is not necessarily for an individual achievement. Her, her award was, was just for working and just managing. She said, I've, I'm here because I've survived yeah. in the industry for 30 years. That's the achievement. Because mm. I think with Julie Delpy, there's not, it's not a specific film that defines her career, is there? No. It's just a big body of work. Yeah, well, and, and in, a multiple, in multiple roles as well. Yeah. And I think she was being as much rewarded as a filmmaker as she was being awarded yeah. for an actress. And she actually came on stage and s explained the struggle she's been having trying to make a film. And part of that being that she would be the director and mm. that financiers had dropped out because it was a female director. And she actually went on stage and said that she will be doing a raffle at the <laughs> after party to try and raise some money that she needs to get this film made. And uh, yeah, I think it was really highlighting the struggle. Yeah. Even someone with such a recognisable yeah. name and such a recognisable face in European cinema still struggles to get something made. And uh, she was true to her word as at the after party. She did indeed pull a number out of her bag and some lucky winner gets to have breakfast with her yeah. yesterday morning, Yeah. which I'm sure did go ahead as planned. Oh, yes. Yeah, she was very adamant that she would, <laughs> as people bought tickets, she will talk about whatever they yeah. want for an hour. Presumably that was an hour of Avengers Age of Ultron chat. Which is her most famous film. Oh, yeah. Definitely. An unforgettable scene. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so next up then was the award for uh, European Documentary. And the nominees were Austerlitz, Communion, La Chana, Stranger in Paradise, and The Good Postman. I predicted Stranger in Paradise for this as it is a film revolving around refugees. And last year's winner, which was Fire at Sea, had a similar theme. And I thought that, once again, the European Film Academy would go for a film of that sort of heavy political weight to it. Mm. Uh, but they did not go for that. Uh, did you get it right either, James? No, I did not. No. Which one did you go for? Uh, I went for Austerlitz. But the winner in this case was Communion. Yeah, which is a uh, Polish documentary, which kind of, I believe it blurs the line between fact and fiction. But a, a girl has to take care of her father, an autistic brother, and a mother who lives separately. And it's just sort of this you know, small-scale family drama, I suppose. Mm. Well, um, this actually kind of gives us, a, not an issue, but something that crops up last year with the European Film Awards as well is that a lot of these films have already had their wide release in Europe and haven't quite made it to England yet. And so there are a number of films that we'll be talking about in this show that we have been lucky enough to see mm. and some that we haven't, but none of which have actually made it into England yet beyond exactly. festival screenings. The European documentary section being an example of that. Yeah. So then next up, uh, we saw Alexander Sukharov receive the award, the Lifetime Achievement Award. So we got to have a chat with him about Russian Ark, about Francophonia, mm -hmm. his most recent film. But predominantly the chat was very politically led. Yes. And uh, he's spoke about it in his speech on stage when he collected this award about his issues with violence in films, mm. which I think was really interesting, that he has taken a very, very strong anti-violence stance in cinema. And he told us that 
he actually went to the director of the Cannes Film Festival and proposed to them uh, that they have no films that show any act of violence. And he explained that 95% of films have violence in some way and that if we continually watch these acts of violence, we're going to regurgitate them. And uh, what is particularly interesting is that he also talked about his next film, which will be set during World War II and is a science fiction fantasy film, which in itself is amazing that Alexander Sokhorov is making mm. that kind of film, which he did say is brand new to him. But to set something during that time, and seemingly it must not involve violence as well, which is <laughs> it's going to be quite an achievement. Absolutely. And uh, I saw Russian Ark for the first time as mm. well on the Friday night. Yeah, and to get to see it on the cinema screen for the first time. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, and uh, as much as we love a Q&A, a 40-minute entirely Russian Q&A did uh, sadly not inform our viewing as much yes. as we hoped it would when we foolishly booked the tickets. Congratulations, Alexander Sukharov, much-deserved Lifetime Achievement Award. Mm. Uh, and then next up, Best Actress and Best Actor with Peter Simonyshek and Sandra Hula, who won last year for their performances in Tony Erdman. So nice to see those two again. Um, uh, let's start with Best uh, European Actor then. So the nominees were Nahuel Perez Biscaya from 120 BPM, Jean-Louis Trignon from Happy End, Joseph Hader from Stefan's Week, Farewell to Europe, Colin Farrell from Killing of a Sacred Deer, and Clay's Bang from The Square. Um, should we break those down a little bit before we reveal the winner? Yeah, I think it's obviously a very strong group there. Mm. And uh, I think for me, this is this is the first category where I've really had to split my heart and my head for my predictions. Because as much as I really like uh, Klaus Bang in the square, it's very much, a, he's a reserve character in it. He doesn't have a lot of visible emotion it's very understated it's very quiet it's very subtle and i really think it's a brilliant performance but nahuel uh perez biscayat in bpm for me is absolutely phenomenal that film is such an emotional journey and it's completely carried off his back he is the person that is right inside the aids epidemic mm. uh, on a very physical level and he is our entry point into ACT UP and the organisation that the film follows. And he is absolutely astonishing in it. And so as much as I wanted him to win, we both felt before the awards began, this was going to be the night of the square. So I put yeah. my BPM heart to one side and my nomination uh, was Klaus Bang. As was mine. And again, I think your decision paid off as Kleist Bang took the stage to accept his award. Just to let you know, we haven't really discussed the square that much yet in detail because we're going to be talking about a lot throughout the show. Yeah. As you can probably tell, it did quite well at the awards. Mm. Yeah, so Kleist Bang there uh, won Best Actor for the Square. Before we go into Best Actress, let's quickly go through the excellent Excellence Awards. So these were all announced before the ceremony. Um, so these are some of the more technical awards, so I'll just rattle some of these off for you. Um, best Cinematographer went to Mikael Crickman for Loveless. Production Designer went to Josephine Asberg for The Square. Costume Designer went to Katarzyna Luwinska for Spore. Uh, hair and Makeup Artist went to Lindert van 
Nian Vegan for Brimstone. Who was at the awards and did look amazing. He looked like a... Um, 80s rock vampire. Yeah. Like something from something that Tom Cruise wore in Interview for the Vampire. Yeah. yeah. Composer went to Yvgeny Galperin for Loveless. Sound designer went to Oriol Tarrego for A Monster Calls. And best editor went to Robin Campillo for uh, 120 BPM. Yes, that's a really good shout. And if you do watch BPM, I think you'll see why it's got that editing award within the first 10 minutes. And he's the director as well, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and in that first 10 minutes, you kind of you see a lecture of this um, AIDS activation group act up and a meeting between all of their members. You see a flashback to a protest uh, that kind of got botched, and then that flashback is then actually split up between how the different factions mm. of the organization saw it. And so you... As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply see the fractured nature of this organization it's not just everyone is good everyone's got the same vision mm. you see them together you see them apart and you see what they're driving for and it's all told at the same time all within those opening minutes and uh yeah that alone is fantastic so and that carries through the whole kind of two and a half hours of that film okay best european actress then the nominees were alexandra borbelli for on body and soul Florence Pugh for Lady Macbeth, Isabel Huppert for Happy End, Paula Beer for France, and Juliette Binoche for Let the Sun Shine In. Okay, who did you go for? In this case, I went for Juliette Binoche for okay. Let the Sun Shine In. We talked about this on the London Film Festival mm-hmm. podcast. Again, it's quite a reserved performance, but it's just, it's like on the tip of uh, 
the precipice of almost breaking down mm. and you can tell that she's she's kind of just holding everything in for this character as she wheels through these male relationships never really finding what she's looking for but not really knowing what it is either and you you feel so much for her even though you're never entirely sure what it is that she's feeling or you're feeling it's this ambiguity of emotion that she translates so well and uh, yeah that's why I went for Beanosh. I went for um, Florence Pugh for Lady Macbeth I don't know if there was just a sort of surge of uh, patriotism through me at that <laughs> point but you got you got full Brexit at that point I got a bit Brexit at that point perhaps yeah um, but I think we we're going to be talking about Lady Macbeth a bit later on as well. But that's a film that has had a really uh, admirable run. Oh yeah, through the past well, year, and I would say it's still running. Yeah, exactly. And it's just kind of we saw it at LFF, not the most recent one, but the year before that. And since then, it's just slowly crept up on people. Yeah. And it has had this really successful run from nowhere, really. Yeah, I think uh, David Ehrlich for IndieWire has kind of championed it yeah or Flo- champion Florence Pugh I should say as a as a runner for Oscar right and uh, I'd be really for that I think it's a yeah. great performance and it's it's really tight it's cold but it's full of anger as well yeah and I'd forgotten just how funny she is like she's got yeah. really good comic timing has, in it. yeah but unfortunately we were both wrong in this category as the winner was Alexandra Borbelli for On Body and Soul yeah and uh, I've not seen On Body and Soul but I want to now just to see her in it because she was so nice as she well. She was so nice and she uh, had some sort of anxiety attack on yeah. stage and she was so nervous and kept crying. And then even at the press conference later, yeah. and usually after these awards, by the time the winners get to the press conference, they're sort of calmed down. Yeah. They've maybe had their champagne already. They're a bit yeah. more relaxed. And she was still struggling to talk. Yeah, and that actually that made me really happy that she had won because yeah. this was clearly a breakthrough for her. This is like you go on her Wikipedia. This is the role that's on there. Yeah, um, and you compare that to Isabella Pereira or Juliette Binoche. I mean, those are your kind of easy options. Those are your European yeah. Film Award Meryl Streeps. Like yeah. that's you just yeah. chuck in there. Um, as much as both of those performances are great, these awards can really do great service to uh, elevating the awareness of le- lesser known uh, actors and filmmakers. And uh, I think this category is an ex- a great shining example of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the winner as well. Mm. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then next up we have the award for best comedy. <laughs> um, so the nominees were King of the Belgians, The Square. Vincent and the End of the World, and Welcome to Germany. Yes. Do we even need to say what we predicted and what won? Uh, well, I, I think from the tone of your voice, um, it, our listeners may have figured this one out already. Yes, the square won once again, and we knew it would. Mm, yeah. um, but you pointed something out to me um, today, that this category in last year's awards, which we've already mentioned, was completely dominated by Tony Erdman, the film that went around all of last year being infamously known as the three-hour German comedy, was not the film that won European comedy. No, last year that went to um, Man Called Over. Yeah. So I'm not sure what what, what their rules are for the crossover. Yeah, because this is it's an odd one, because we like, it's not like you have an Oscar for comedy or a BAFTA for comedy. But you have a golden, you have a golden comedy, but that's because it's up for best picture, that, comedy or musical. Yeah, with the or, Golden Globes, it's like you you are either you're either a drama or mm. you're a comedy. 
here that clearly isn't the case. Because you can be a comedy and you can be best film yeah. if you wanted to be. I'm sure there's a reasoning that we don't know. Yeah. But it, it but yeah, the Square won that um, that award for best comedy. I mean, I, I'm sure there are some people that w- would not see the Square as a comedy as well. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's it's very not, funny. It's very funny, but it's also very a very subdued comedy. Yeah, but maybe in the same maybe way that's... that Tony Erdman is not not necessarily I an think, out and out. I comedy. think Tony Erdman's quite broad, actually. Yeah, I think Tony Erdman's. I don't know. It's got, it's quite different. Tony Evans is almost, not slapstick, but it does have it's farcy. It's farce. Yeah, I mean the square is satire, but mm. like deep satire. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that um, so yeah, best comedy went to the square. Next up, then we have the European Discovery Award. Uh, last year, this was won by the happiest day in the life of Ollie Mackie. Okay, uh, the nominees this year for European Discovery were Bloody Milk, Godless. Lady Macbeth, Summer 1993, and The Eremites. But before we reveal the winner, here is our interview with the director of Lady Macbeth, William Aldroyd. So, uh, William Aldroyd, welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, so uh, congratulations on your nominations for Lady Macbeth. Great, yeah, thank you. So we both saw the film over a year ago now at the UK premiere yeah. uh, in a London Film Festival. So I imagine for been you that's going on been for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've um, really been milking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what can you talk about how um, sort of your approach to the film has changed in that that such a long time since it premiered? And you know, if you're, you're answering the same questions like quite a lot, I imagine. But do your answers to those questions change? I think that inevitably, when you know you travel to different film festivals, and I've tried to go to most of them, mainly to support the independent distributors in each country. And also just because I'm very proud of the film and it's the first film and I want to sort of give it the best chance it can have at sort of getting a wide release. Meeting those audiences and hearing their thoughts has made me think differently about the film because some people will bring things up I hadn't thought about. Mm. And is that the same with like the critical response to the film? Like people or like theorising about the film or interpreting the film in new ways that make you think differently about it? Yes, I have tried not to read too many of the critics. I think because okay. they're... You know, on the whole, being positive, but yeah. I realise, having worked for about ten years in theatre, that if you believe those, and you also have to believe the, <laughs> the the ones that give you a kicking. Yeah. You know, I think it's tough. You know, I, if you start to. I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful that actually the reviews have been positive and helped the film to find mm. an audience, uh, but I don't want it to sort of interfere with the work that I do next yeah. if, that, if you see what I mean yeah, yeah. But, uh, but actually the stuff I have read has really yeah has helped me to sort of it's shone a light on some of the things I mean I think you can you can make certain choices and you know why you're making it but then actually what you can't really figure out is in, in individual interpretation and think that for a certain audience members it's going to mean that yeah. when you hadn't actually worked that right. out okay. and that's been very interesting you know going through uh, and hearing people's re- reactions to the film. Yeah, and so you've you, you've um, you've kind of done the whole promotion of the film's release now, mm-hmm. and I guess it's kind of starting the awards run at the moment. And does this kind of feel like the sort of the bookend of your relationship with the film in a way? Well, I felt like actually when I was in Canada, yeah, I was in Toronto in maybe September, just before yeah. TIFF this year. Okay. It was the Canadian release of the film having premiered the year before yeah. TIFF. And I felt like now is a good time after a year of promoting this film to maybe say this is the last right, okay. 
because I had so many people who I work with who said, can you please stop travelling and come and actually do some work on an, you know, another film, yeah. for example. <laughs> um, uh, which has been quite... I've been able to do that on the road, you know, a lot yeah. of reading and a lot of um, uh, writing and so on with, with people. But, um, yes, I guess it's, it's never-ending in a way. Um, I'm really happy to do whatever I'm asked to do in order yeah. to support this film because so many people put so much work into it uh, and so many people are very, so many collaborators of mine are very proud of this film so if there's any way in which I can help to get a, yeah. a large audience I'll do that okay. okay so in terms of the film itself then you mentioned there that your background's in theatre yeah. and this is a you know, relatively small scale film set largely in one location yeah. can you talk about how you worked with the cinematographer to kind of almost prevent it kind of looking like a filmed theatre production and really feel like a film Yes, well that was, I mean Ari Wegner, she was our cinematographer and uh, that's the first thing we spoke about, uh, especially because we like to keep the camera quite still, yeah. we like people to sort of be reasonably still within the frame um, and there is a danger then it looks like it's sort of proscenium arch of the theatre yeah. and so what do we do? Well we had to then develop a sort of language of you know, when would the camera move? Well, it has to move according to Florence, well, to, according to Catherine's mm -hmm. motivation. So actually, by using Catherine as the motivation for the camera movement, then we connected the camera with her. So actually, we realised if you can, f if you can, if there's an emotional connection between audience and character, then maybe they're not thinking about the sort of mise-en-scene, which is the mm. thing that can yeah. make it feel distancing. And we use that distancing effect when we need it, when... Catherine is being objectified by the men, for example. Okay. So she's sort of placed small in the frame, and then there's they view her from afar, and she's then squashed by the yeah. frame, and she's contained, and so on. But I was really, really careful because I, the first few shorts I made did feel like uh, theatre okay. on um, on screen, and I think a lot of that is to do with language, like essentially the word being the sort of motor for the scene mm. whereas actually it's mainly about thought or maybe image in cinema if we can capture thought rather mm. than needing to say it and actually it's those sorts of things well we yeah. were very very mindful of it absolutely and okay. um, i just really relied on our editor nick emerson and ari who shot it yeah and also alice as well whose background is in theater as well to actually help me to try and take out what wasn't ne necessarily needed to be said yeah and um, you know, when we think of like a period piece, you kind of the first thing you think of is like a, a lavish country manor. But here, it's you know, it's all kind of um, it's quite sparse and minimal. The setting. I mean, was that a conscious choice on your your team's part, or was that? But was there a budgetary reason for that as well? Oh uh, well, both always. But you know, we we didn't have very much money, um, and um, we decided to make a virtual budget. When when we first propose that we make a, a period drama on that budget yeah. people thought it was sort of certainly bold move because they're not typically made um, for the money we had so we had to then think well what what do we absolutely need we, yeah. every, every single decision we took was we had to justify because right. it was going to cost some money and we were lucky because Alice had written a script which actually had a sort of austerity of emotion austerity of okay. language so the world was quite a sort of cold and empty place. Yeah. And then we found this brilliant old castle in, uh, 
in Durham, on Chesterley Street near Durham, and uh, it had been stripped because they had um, shot a series in their TV series, um, the, the Paradise, I think it's called. Okay. And um, so they left it empty. So we went there. It was this sort of empty old house, and we thought, well, this actually is quite good for us. You can just imagine a woman standing there, and then you can put some furniture in there. And we can just sparsely yeah. furnish mm-hmm. it, and it worked quite well because of the time of year we were in the northeast. The light that was coming through the windows reminded me of these Danish paintings I'd seen, William Hammershaw's paintings, where again very sparsely f- furnished rooms, women standing in isolation, usually wearing black, facing away from the viewer. Yeah. I thought this feels right, this is a sort of right tone mm. for the film. And um, we just added, we, just, we, we started empty, we just added what we needed. Yeah. And that was actually quite a good way okay. of doing it. And then there were sort of very practical things that the designer did, for example, Jacqueline Abrahams, the designer, actually bought the furniture, for example, and then right. sold it back to a production house. Okay. So actually, you know, we weren't renting it for, yeah. for long periods of time and spending a lot of money. And right. So. And um, in terms of Florence then, yeah. um, before you, you cast her, had you seen her in The Falling or yeah. did that come out later? I went okay. to see her in the cinema in The Falling, yeah. Okay. And Jaheen Baig, who cast Lady Macbeth, also cast The Falling. So she oh, knew okay. Florence Perfect. because yeah. she and Carol had um, worked to find her for, for that film. Right, okay. And I thought, I mean, you watch Florence in The Falling and you can just see yeah. it immediately. I mean, yeah, yeah there definitely. she is. I mean, she's brilliant. And um, was it quite a lot of workshopping with Florence as well to kind of shape Catherine? Uh, well, we well, we did a couple of auditions where we brought some guys in to sort of wrestle with her mainly. I mean, right, that was okay. the sort of thing we needed to see what sort of chemistry people had with yeah. each other. And then once we uh, knew that France was going to play the part, then really it was just a case of sitting down for a few days mm. with Florence and Naomi and, and Cosmo, who played Sebastian and, yeah. and Anna, and just making sure that we all knew what each thought was more or less because um, if we knew that was clear then actually I would save time on our very tight shoot because you know they they would be able to sort of do that work without me needing to sort of step in and say you know where we are now and so and then then we had we had a bit of time to be able to play with some of the scenes a little bit but but they were very wary of actually sort of spending themselves emotionally they wanted to reserve it until we actually shot it which I completely understand and so we, we just went through some very basic blocking okay but it was really to give them to sort of empower them to you know yeah. really to, and they've got such good instincts okay anyway. and then um finally then something we were talking about was how Catherine does some quite sort of morally reprehensible things in the film and yet there's still this air of sort of likability to her in a way like can you talk about how you worked that in and yes i don't know whether i mean balance. I did, yes if yeah i, I think you know, we should be conflicted in the way in which yeah. we feel about Catherine at the end, because ultimately, what she does to Anna is abhorrent. What she does to Teddy and yeah. Sebastian, I think, deserves it. I think that's a betrayal, okay. which actually he he asked for. You know, and also she's not really attracted to a weak man like Sebastian. Right. who's going to sort of um, confess in that way. But uh, I think the setup is very important. If we understand why she'd want to do mm. these things, why she needs to do these things, what her sort of the, the, the the situation she finds herself in is, is so desperate, then I think we would understand at least. Right, okay. And hopefully that understanding becomes empathetic if, we've, if, yeah. we, if we play it right. I think Florence did so well to just judge it and play it right. 
it really has split the audience where mm. depending on where you go in the yeah. world and we've been to some great places and found that people friends who sit together and they go to the cinema all the time one feels very strongly one way and the other feels very right. strongly the other way okay. uh, and that I think is what makes good character yeah you know, I think you'd be fine that you're conflicted and, and Alice was very keen to do that rather than to land heavily on one side or the yeah, other yeah sure Great. Uh, William Aldred, thank you for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Not only were we speaking to the nominated director, William Aldred, we were speaking to now a European Film Award winner because he won the award for European Discovery for Lady Macbeth. Yeah, um, so this is given out to first-time filmmakers. Yeah. And you watch Lady Macbeth and you kind of forget that that's a first-time filmmaker because yeah. it's so accomplished and it's so yeah. composed. And I think um, everyone in the room was pretty excited about what was going to come next because the film was finished 18 months ago now and uh, there's been a lot of time for William Albright to well read and write and plan what's going to come next and he, and he gave some hints uh, that he, he's got a project on the line and I think a lot of people are really excited with what Florence Pugh's going to do um, he did mention that in the time that they've been promoting the film she's gone off and shot five films um, whilst he hasn't done anything yeah. um, but what I'm really excited about is The Little Drummer Girl which is the uh, follow-up from the night manager team and it's going to be TV. She's the lead alongside Alexander Skarsgård and Park Chan-wook is going to be directing. And I think after The Handmaiden, yeah. everyone will be really excited about that. And it's uh, kind of 70s thriller spies. Oh, cool. Really up for it. Okay. And uh, that segues nicely then to uh, the award for best film. As you mentioned, Alexander Skarsgård there whose father is Stellan Skarsgård, who presented the award for Best European Film. He's not just that. He's your mate, isn't he? He is also my mate, yeah. As you heard on our Borg McEnroe podcast, it ended with him saying, nice to see you again. Yeah. And he came up to me at the after party. He bought me a beer. Yeah. It was very nice. And he said, Sam, I'm really, really thrilled you're here. I wasn't going to come until they told me that. You are the best person that's ever interviewed me, he yeah. said. Yeah, well, yeah. What can I say? None of that happened. Um, the nominees for European film were 120 BPM, Loveless, The Square, On Body and Soul, and The Other Side of Hope. And as you definitely know already, <laughs> we both predicted The Square and The Square won. It did, yes. Uh, the Square won six awards, yep. including the awards for actor. Um, an ab- absolute sweep. Yeah. Yeah, a very a clean sweep, and it felt yeah. like everyone in the room already knew it, even down to the set dresses of the stage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you if you were watching the live stream of the show, you'll notice that they decided to form these little sketch recreations of Bergman and Pawlikowski films, yeah. and uh, each one of them appeared in a square on stage that was lit with a white neon light which is exactly the titular square from the film The Square. Uh, So I don't think anyone was really under any illusions that anything would be coming home with awards after the stage lit up like that. Well, it's interesting because last year, I remember I predicted best film would go to I, Daniel Blake Mm. because that won the Palm Door. And I thought, surely there must be some crossover between the Cannes Committee and the European Film Committee. Yeah. they the same stuff but it didn't so yeah last year went to Tony Erdman which uh, sort of did, uh, didn't win best mm. film uh, best film at Cannes and this year again I thought oh maybe it won't go to the square because the square uh, if you don't know won the Palm Door this year so I, I, we, you know I sort of 
I toyed around with maybe on Body and Soul or maybe Loveless. Loveless won Best on the uh, London Film mm. Festival and has a lot of love behind it, mm. despite the title. <laughs> Thanks. But I think you could just feel it, couldn't you, in the air? Yeah, yeah. It was just... one of those nights. Once director and screenplay had already gone, I don't know where else it could go. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, you know, if, if the other side of Hope suddenly won Best Picture, that would have been a huge surprise. Yeah, I wouldn't have been against that. I really love that I film. mean... This is these are good no, these are good nominees. Yeah. Um, but anything other than the square winning would have been a surprise at that point. Yeah, definitely. Um, so should we should we talk a bit about the square then? Yes. Um, because it's not out in the UK until next year. Next year. So the square is Ruben Austin's follow up to Force Majeure, and similarly to that film, it shows how one sort of somewhat meaningless act can have damaging repercussions to a man's sense of social placement mm-hmm. where yeah. he fits into his own personal society yeah and, and I the think, people around him yeah i think what he considers to be his power yeah i think is really um fractured by it i think he's yeah. uh, very emasculated through the film yeah he is and he's really deconstructed on his belief my friend who recently saw the square she said that um having been to sweden um, the square nails that sort of sense of how like in Sweden there's this kind of sense of everyone is fighting for sort of social justice but then there's also this rich this affluence everywhere mm. and the square nails that yeah well that is the running contradiction throughout that it is very much a middle class audience who is at the yeah. center of the plot uh, and at the the gallery at which most of the events of the film unfold. And to be honest, most of the audience for this film as well yeah. is going to be uh, seeing a reflection of themselves. Um, totally. I know from a lot of gallery visits and kind of artistic interpretations <laughs> that I have made, uh, I definitely un- unfortunately saw myself in a lot of yeah. this film. And I'm sure Ruben Ursland and Clive Bang see themselves in this film. And that's what it does a really good job at doing. Yeah. Um, and as well as being kind of quite damning, mm. it's not shouting you in the face for, no. for wanting to go to museums and galleries yeah. and um, look at fine art. Uh, it's kind of just looking, uh, telling you to look at the paradoxes of it, of how this square, which is the centerpiece of the exhibition, is a place where kind of all of your guilt can be unbound yeah. and you can be free and be safe and uh, ultimately that's pointless <laughs> yeah and there's a sort of myth that um, at the Oscars a film about Hollywood is more likely to win mm. because Hollywood likes this sort of mirror being shown up to them mm. and this maybe that's the same reason the square won so many awards is that the Academy sort of saw a lot of themselves in it in a way yeah there was that reflective I... nature to it not that it's about filmmaking but it's about that kind of world of like high culture and artistry. Yeah, and it's got that self-awareness to it yeah. that awards season always really likes. Yeah. And I'm amazed that a film like The Square exists as well. <laughs> the fact that it is two and a half hours long yeah. and a lot of the scenes do take a long time and it's full of yeah. quiet, long takes. And the fact that it is that and it is quite deep, but it is also really good fun. Like it there are fun. scenes yeah. in it that are dragged out and out just because they're funny. 
Yeah. And he lets them breathe. Um, there's a particular scene with a condom, uh, <laughs> Elizabeth Moss and Clive Bang, which yeah. is excellent and just re- like gets really pulled out in both senses of the word um, for about 10 minutes. It's excellent. And there is this, um, this monkey man scene, which has been all over the yeah. marketing, and people will be talking about that a lot when the film comes out. They already have been since it debuted at Cannes. Um, as a short film by itself, that scene would work because this yeah. film is almost, in a way, a collection of random installations that yeah. Christ Bang seems to be walking through. Definitely. Okay, and uh, like I said, it's not been released in the UK yet, so um, we'll we'll save some of our comment for it. For yes, then. well, we have actually got an interview uh, with Ruben Ursland and Christ Bang about the film uh, for this very podcast, which we will be very excited mm-hmm. to bring you. Yes, we'll be going into more detail about the the square later on. But the square was the big winner of the night. Uh, So well done to Ruben Osland and his entire team. And that's it for us uh, today. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Oh, mate, you've forgotten about our our bet. I have forgotten about our bet. I I think it's a tie. It is exactly (laughs) a tie. We we did exactly the same. Uh, I think we only varied on uh, actress. actress. Yeah. Well, looks like we will be uh, splitting the curry versed and mulled wine tonight then. And uh, if you wanted to get your own taste of the European Film Awards, look no further than Curzon Home Cinema, where there are a few films that were nominated for awards tonight, as well as from last year's awards that you can actually watch right now on demand. For instance, Happy End, Michael Haneke's film, which led to Best Actor nominees for Jean-Louis Trignon and Best Actress nomination for Isabel Huppe is available on there, as well as Aki Karasmaki's The Other Side of Hope, Francophonia, which was directed by uh, Alexander Sukharov, who received the Lifetime Achievement Award, Lady Macbeth, the winner of the Discovery Award, and A Monster Calls, the winner of the award for sound design. Uh, you can also check out last year's uh, film's my Life as a Courgette, A Man Called Irva, Land of Mine, and of course the big winner, Tony Erdman, which are all on Curzon Home Cinema right now. All right, well, thank you very much for listening. Yes, and hopefully we'll see you next year um, from Seville, where the 31st European Film Awards will be taking place. So it's goodbye from Jake. Auf Wiedersehen. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>